Hi, I'm Ann Delisi. Welcome to episode 20 of Essential Conversations. In December of 2015, Frank Sinatra would have turned 100 years old. To honor him, there were music celebrations, exhibits, and HBO's documentary about his life, All or Nothing at All. At that same time, his daughter, Tina Sinatra, was doing interviews in which she talked about her iconic father, their family, and his music. Hi, Anne. Hi, Detroit. Hi. (laughs) It is so great to talk to you. What a pleasure. What an absolute pleasure. Thank you for making the time, and thank you for being on an ISDN. I think your father would have appreciated it. (laughs) I am in the Capitol Tower. How great is that? I have consumed more Frank Sinatra information than I think humanly possible in the last 24 hours, and it has been quite a journey. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> it's quite a journey. But, but you the... listen to his music? Of course I do. Yeah, I think The right. Best Is Yet to Come is one of the best songs ever recorded with him and the Count Basie Orchestra. Yeah, just exactly. Just incredible. So given that your father would have turned 100 years old today, One of the things that struck me when I was reading about him and doing my research was, I want to go back before your father entered the world and talk about his mother, um, your grandmother, Dolly Sinatra. Mm -hmm. I think think a movie (laughs) could be made about her and would be as fascinating as any movie about him. She was a force to be reckoned with, and given that, uh, you know, little Frankie would be her only child, she was pretty um, guarded of him and could be tough on him uh, for little things like getting a suit dirty and mm-hmm. stuff, you know, like that. But uh, she had a terrible delivery. He was born dead. Forceps had torn his left ear off, and he was bleeding to death, and he was blue and not not making any sounds, and... Um, they set him uh, aside trying to figure out what to do. But in those days, it was a you know midwife birth. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dad's grandmother uh, rose to grab him up and put him under f- running cold water in December. Cold water flat, by the way, so that's all they had. And he let out a shry. And uh, they got a doctor in time to reattach the ear, and the rest is history. But Grandma Dolly always said she knew at that time when he let out that scream that he was going to be a singer. (laughs) Started then. I mean, that's an incredible entry into the world. That's an unbelievable way to start your life. Um, And then he went on to have an unbelievable life. He was driven from that moment. He was born to do exactly what he uh, what he did. It was a God given gift, anyway. I mean, he was he could be nothing but a singer. What has been, in your experience, the most misreported um, piece of information about your father that you just say they got it wrong again? Well, I read a couple of weeks ago that he was a drug lord. What for? Uh, yeah, he was friends with uh, Pablo Escobar. Yeah, that's who it was. And his son, Escobar's son, has written a book claiming that dad was into cocaine and was a major uh, carrier, like a courier of it, because he, I don't know, he was a courier, by the way, for the CIA at times. Anyone with notoriety that people wouldn't screw around with that had private planes, you know, took people and, and, and documents um, surreptitiously. Mm-hmm. But this now is this new one, this is this is interesting. So I, I, I kind of I kind of liked it in a way. But the most um, 
I mean, it was so stupid, it was funny. Um, I'd say that I don't like a lot of the overplay of his links to the mafia. Mm -hmm. uh, people have to understand uh, Dad was born uh, into uh, a neighborhood where they, too, uh, were born. And they all grew up at the same time. He knew them as children. Mm -hmm. They would then become, uh, remain lifelong friends, uh, the ones he knew from childhood that lived, mm -hmm. <laughs> that weren't, you know, blown out. Um, he wasn't buds that, to any deep extreme. But, you know, it's an Italian, um, there's, a, there's a loyalty that runs deep in Italian male mentality. And he could know it might not be right to help somebody uh, uh, who walked the other side of the law, but um, he wouldn't not help them. And when he was hungry and couldn't feed his children, the home uh, that he had left, you know, when I was just a baby, and he wasn't hireable in the big clubs across the country, uh, the guys he knew as a youth owned them. Mm -hmm. uh, their own clubs, and they put him to work. The 500 Club in Atlantic City, to name one. Uh, I think he got to Vegas earlier than not because of the his uh, his friendships or his acquaintances. Most of them were that um, in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. So I I think he helped build. I was just there last week for four days and. All the uh, journalists were saying, it seems like your father helped build the city. And I said, I can't imagine uh, any other way of putting it. Mm -hmm. But I don't like the, uh, you know, Freedom of Information Act gave us uh, um, access to all files and things. There was never anything that linked Dad in a criminal way. It, it, he wasn't that kind of human being anyway. But he wouldn't squeal on his friends, you know, as he used to put it. And he didn't like bullies. And he was loyal, as loyal as anyone could ever be. And when he was uh, st um, kind of, um, many suggested, he would walk away from people easily and, um, and never look back. I remember reading that a million times in my life. Well, if that person he walked away from was disloyal, this is that Italian thing again. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's how those guys handle it. Not not. I'm, I'm out of the mob now. I'm just saying, uh, Dad was was a typical Italian male um, who made good for himself. You know. I'm talking with Tina Sinatra here on 1019 WDET. You're listening to Essential Music. Um, was he a perfectionist? Yes. He was also very neat and tidy, which I love. I got that <laughs> he from always him. looked great. I mean, every photo yeah. you see of him, he was he dressed impeccably. He was a style setter. Everything he did was impeccable, to tell you the truth. Um, even when he was sloppy, he was not wrinkled. I never saw him wrinkle. <laughs> I figured out how he'd get off a plane and not have a crease, and that's because he'd walk his way to where he was going, and he just. Um, Eventually, it was suitable to get a private plane because he could relax. If, if you relaxed on a public plane with him, he'd get mobbed, you know. Mm -hmm. it was, he'd always have his guard up. He um, was methodical. Well, when I was reading about him being in the studio, um, and your father was, he didn't know how to read music, but it certainly didn't get in his way, and it, it impressed people around him 
at how incredibly musical he was, how he could hear things and how he could interpret things and that he was a conductor in his own right. Um, were you ever in any of the sessions when you were a kid watching him with an orchestra performing and leading? Do you remember if you were in there? Do you remember? When he was conducting? Mm -hmm. Conducting or recording, singing. Yes, I have memories of him recording. Uh, one or two in this Capitol Tower. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful... Uh, nostalgic place, this this great tower. Um, I remember more of the reprise uh, era because I was older. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he was at home in a recording studio, and, you know, he had a full orchestra around him, and he was off to his side with maybe a baffle of glass that he could um, still see everything, and they could see him, and he'd sing live. No tricks, you know, no... Mm -hmm. The time it was uh, started out at Capitol on single track, went to three track, and then eventually 12, and they kept getting more and more sophisticated. But he always recorded live in the room with the orchestra. He didn't like to be isolated in a booth or, or separated at all. Let's talk about the song, My Way. I've read a couple of places that he did not like that song, and it is a signature song for him, as are many others. How did he feel about that song? He didn't dislike the song. My Way became uh, like an anthem. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that might be his term. Uh, I've heard it somewhere. Um, I think that, you know, he began uh, loving it and singing it. It was new and it was working, God knows. Mm -hmm. It was a huge hit for him. But, you know, that becomes something the audience expects. So no matter where he performed, it was always going to be an encore song. And that went on for, I don't know, probably nearly 15, 18 years. And I think, you know, artists get tired of the mm -hmm. same songs. But he, he, didn't, he didn't hate it. Were there any songs or a song in particular that he absolutely loved to sing over and over? You know, you hear certain artists say that they can sing one particular song over and over and it never gets old for them. Was there a song like that for him? Well, he had staple titles mm -hmm. almost in every show. Um, he'd pick his, select his songs for the night um, in the afternoon, and he'd change up some uh, more often than others. I don't think I ever watched him perform where he didn't sing, I've Got You Under My Skin and, and uh, World on a String, you know, You Make Me Feel So Young, and perhaps he did. Uh, forfeit one or, or two of those at a time, you know, or from time to time. He he wanted to change up in case someone had seen him in New York three mm -hmm. weeks before he played Chicago, and you know, so he he tried to keep it new, uh, and uh, but he had to deliver what they wanted to hear at the same time. We live in a day and age where, um, in the last few years, I guess the last couple decades, where bands or artists will take weeks to make an album. And it sounds like he could do half of an album in a day and sing a, a <laughs> yeah. number of songs and sing them beautifully, and those would be the final takes for an album. Was because they were live and in the room, and if they weren't good, everybody knew it. He might put it off to a next session, which might not be the next day. It might have been three or four weeks later. I, If you look at his discography, you can see the same title, uh, song span a year and a half mm -hmm. uh, and, and and see it's never issued, wasn't issued, wasn't issued, and eventually it was issued, uh, or not. Those are some of the early things we did when, when Stad left us, was look for the songs 
that had never been issued um, to date. He'd play with a song sometimes for many, many months. And then he would finally get the take that he wanted? Either, either get it or, or not get it. But when, when it came to doing a, a 12 sides album, um, mm-hmm. or I don't know, 33 and a third, were they 10, uh, 10 sides, 10 titles? I, I know that he, he would do an album in no more than three sessions uh, uh, because I've looked at the schedules of them in my, mm-hmm. in my you know, tenure with doing this. He preferred to get the music one album at a time done, and sometimes he would over-record, and some of those songs would find their way into an album two or three later down the line. Mm. But Dad had to allocate his time to record, allocate, get out of town, go back on the road, and and recording uh, um, dates were vital to him. It was his favorite thing to do was go in and and live record. So uh, he pretty much started, I think he pretty much started and stopped one album, Mm -hmm. uh, one project at a time. Coming up next, Tina Sinatra talks about her parents, Frank Sinatra's work as an actor, and the musicians and singers he liked to listen to. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Andalisi, and here's the conclusion of my conversation with Tina Sinatra. I want to talk about the relationship between your parents because mm-hmm. as divorced people, it seems to me from reading what I've read that they had such an unusual relationship for being divorced mm-hmm. and that they still had such a connection. And I wanted you to verify that and if that is the case, what that was like for you to watch as one of their children. Well, it was uh, it made it easy. Obviously, they knew that they had to do uh, the best for their children. They never uh, argued in front of any of us. We never heard an unkind word spoken of one of the other by the other. Um, Mom made it very easy for Dad to uh, have access to us. Uh, sometimes he'd come into town for a day and a half, and if he could be with us an hour or two, she would get us. Uh, primed and ready, you know, clean us up, get us dressed, and either he'd come to us or we'd be off to him. And, of course, she always was open to us traveling to where he was once we were old enough to do that, as long as we were accompanied. Mm -hmm. Um, We made family trips together, all of us, the five of us at times. She knew that if she made any problems, uh, the children would get the, the short, you know, end of the the short straw. Mm-hmm. She wanted to make it um, natural and friendly and loving. And uh, our, our door was, our home was his home. And uh, if he wanted to, to come uh, to see us, uh, he, he knew he would, that he could. We would move heaven and earth to spend time with him. And mom was the best at juggling all the schedules with sleepovers in school and, you know, and, and dad's busy life. It was, uh, it was a very good decision they made, and it never faltered. 
Was he the love of her life? Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about He's a, it. He would be a hard act to follow, I suppose. <laughs> well, also, you know, my mother was a Catholic uh, mm. at a point in time when marriage was um, uh, for life. Mm-hmm. And... Um, She's recently said to me, I'm the only one who will live to be 100 and the last voice I hear be dad's because she's, <laughs> she's going to be 99 in March. And she's a strong, uh, she's sore, you know, right. got aches and pains, but sharp as a tack and um, quite a remarkable woman. She was, she was really the, the, the glue, the substance that held us all together. And dad could not have done what he did if she had not been that because... He wouldn't let his family down and uh, would have taken up too much of his time. He was uh, to control us, you know, if he had to. He, he, was, um, he was very lucky to have mom. Uh, he, in, a, in ways, he married the right woman. Right. <laughs> I'm talking with Tina Sinatra here on 1019 WDET. You're listening to Essential Music. Uh, Tina, can you talk about his relationship with Nelson Riddle? Uh, which seems uh-huh. to me to be an incredible partnership and such mutual respect on such a high level, those two. Yeah, no, they, it was a fluke. Dad came to, to Capitol and Nelson was here. And they, uh, I don't remember who exactly suggested that they go into the studio the first time together and, and, and cut Dad's first album. But uh, they clicked I dare say, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, he was very soft-spoken, very sweet. Um, I always felt he was kind of a melancholy man. I, I didn't know him well. My brother did. Um, he had a family, you know. He worked very hard. He recorded and arranged for, for uh, conducted and arranged for far more artists than than just Dad. But um, Capital was very dependent on him, and he did a great job. I think that the team is what made this capital era so uh, so important to uh, to this day. One of the things that I read was a quote from Nelson Riddle, who said, because he would arrange um, these songs, and uh, that your father would, from time to time, say, well, I think it should be this way, a different way. Mm-hmm. And that Nelson Riddle said that your father's decision was always superior to his. Well, he was, you know, innate in this business, though he had no education. Nelson, of course, had tremendous musical education. But, you know, uh, Dad always worked well collaboratively. He he liked to sound off people. He wanted their input. And I, I've heard many times that Nelson said, yeah, well, you're right again, you know. But uh, <laughs> that's what made them great, uh, a great team. And Nelson stayed with Dad, uh, you know, as uh, Dad moved into his reprise era. So, um, and Gordon Jenkins and, and Billy May and Don Costa and Quincy Jones. I mean, y- you, you work with the best, you're going to get the best. I, have, I could talk to you all day, Tina. I know you have other people to talk to. I have just a couple of other questions. Your father was, um, he set the standard for incredible singing and performing. Who did he like to listen to? Oh, gosh, Peggy Lee, Rosie Clooney, uh, Ella, Mm -hmm. by all means, Ella Fitzgerald, Tony Bennett. uh, He loved Vic Damone. He he liked uh, all of the pop artists, I have to say. Uh, He loved Bobby Darin when when, when we were moving into um, the early 60s. 
I remember he was um, at one point kind of sad that Bobby had left, you know, the pop era, mm-hmm. the pop market, but uh, loved what he continued to do. He always said, if it's arranged well and the and the, the lyric is good and I can understand what they're saying, I'm happy. He just got a little discombobulated when, when uh, it all went sort of to the uh, hard rock of it, but he loved, uh, he thought the Beatles were swell. He mm-hmm. really admired them as songwriters first. And, and he covered them. And music, as singers, really. he could hear them and understand them, so that was, that was a plus. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one final question, and then I will definitely let you go on. When it came to acting, uh, I w- I'm going to assume that singing was his first love and then acting was a close second. Did he enjoy that process when he didn't have total control? It seems like in the studio, ultimately, he would have control over what was going on. But then when you get on a movie set, you are one of a huge ensemble and only have so much control. Was that kind of an issue for him? This is an interesting question. Um, And I know why you're asking it. I think that Dad had less acting training than he had singing training. I think he knew his limitations as an actor, and I think that he was born to act, and I think he was acting before he was hired, because I think that each lyric, the way he would perform it and deliver it, was was acting, it, honest, honest and pure acting, and I think they go hand in hand with him. The process of filmmaking was, was a slow process, and yes, uh, there were times when... Um, you've heard that he would do a take or two and say, look, I'm not doing this again. I think a lot of that in, had to do with the fact he was afraid he couldn't do it again. Mm-hmm. I mean, some some actors could do 40, 50 takes, and some directors insisted. That was not a- as easy for him in temperament or in in trust of of his knowledge uh, of, or in, the, in, in terms of acting um, skills. He was a natural at everything he did. It's hard to be natural on take 54, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think it was double-edged. And, and I I also think that um, if he respected the, the director, if he respected the people he was working with, and he normally, naturally, he would or he wouldn't work with them, I mean, he would he would be more patient. Mm-hmm. Um, impatience would come when he felt... Uh, somebody wasn't thinking, you know, and and he might have, uh, you know, to open at the uh, fountain blow, you know, uh, four days later, and and this this schedule of this particular picture, and and what sixty one, whatever it was, I'm mm-hmm. making the whole thing up, would screw that up. And Dad didn't live like that. If he made a date, a commitment, then he wanted to meet it. And a lot of times, film production gets out of hand, and um, more so, I think now than ever. Spencer Tracy always said to him, Frankie, Frank, (laughs) learn your lines and hit your mark. I was reading that for uh, Ocean's Eleven, that was the first film to feature the Rat Pack, which I also read that Lauren Bacall was the person that gave them that name, so you'll have to verify that. Um, it was a different pack of people, but he, she 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 said, "You guys look like a, a pack of rats." <laughs> That's what. But that was years before. Um, but when Ocean's Eleven was being done, did your father, in fact, pay Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr.'s fees at that time? I was reading I about that, that your father, to, in order to get them into the film and make sure they were in the film, that he actually paid them himself, which I thought I was don't interesting. Know. So that was interesting. I um, wouldn't put it past him. 
<laughs> yeah, and that he overpaid them too, according to this. Uh-huh. <laughs> he not only no paid doubt. them, but he overpaid them, of course. <laughs> um, Tina Sinatra, you are uh, a joy to talk to, and I think your father would absolutely love um, all of the attention that he's getting on what would have been his 100th birthday. That's all you've heard about. It's like he put out a new album or something um, these past mm. couple weeks. How wonderful. Well, you know what? He deserves it. And uh, it's it's been a joy this year. It's been a journey and a joy. And we, it gave us a lot to think about this last 17 years. And he always said, I will, I will last if one generation passes me on. And I thought of it last night. He's gone 17 years. That's three years short of a new generation, mm-hmm. of a next generation. So uh, he got passed on one more time. And I think that will continue long after we're all gone. Absolutely. Tina Sinatra, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Essential Conversation series is a production of Detroit's public radio station, WDET, and supported by ELS Studio 3D. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll listen to other episodes in this series. Production provided by Rowan Nemisto and original music by Brett Lucas. I'm Ann Delisi. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.